what I want to do now is change the trajectory of, of where we are as a people for the future. I want to be able to start to understand and be able to shift and help others communicate and, and find their way into an industry that doesn't always or hasn't always welcomed them into it. Benvenuti a Ciao Bella. I'm your host, Erica Firpo. For the past 20 years, I've made my home in Rome, where I've worked as a journalist contributing to publications including Afar, Washington Post, Lonely Planet, and Travel and Leisure. I love sharing the stories of Italy's pioneering creators, and I'm bringing these stories directly to you on Ciao Bella. Every week, I'm joined by contemporary artists, heritage artisans, designers, culinary experts, innovative esthetes, and more. At the crossroads of evolution and tradition, the past and the future, they are working and creating to define and redefine 21st century Italy. Join me as we see Italy through their eyes. A regular face in vogue and women's wear daily, knitwear designer Edward Buchanan has become an internationally recognized visionary in the high fashion world and a thought leader for diversity in the industry. The designer and founder of knitwear label Sansovino 6 began his career straight out of Parsons School of Design when he moved to Italy to work with Bottega Veneta. And since then, he's full-time in Milan. Edward's over 30-year career includes Italian houses like Giorgio Mani, Bottega Veneta, Max Mara, and of course, Sansovino 6. He is a self-described omnivore who curates the convergence of catwalk and sidewalk, street and elite, politics and party, and of course, culture. And he is co-founder of We Are Made in Italy, advocating for black and brown creatives in the fashion industry and more. Listen up to hear Edward's story. Hey, welcome back to Ciao Bella. Today I'm sitting in the studio with Edward Buchanan, the creative force behind Sansovino 6, or Sansovino 6. Sansovino 6, Sansovino 6, whatever we want to call it. See, that's what's being Italian, a super artistic, I don't know, your creative director, you, you've had a lot of, you know, a lot of different, um, I wouldn't call them titles, like you're, you're, you're a, a big 360 in the world wear, of art and fashion. I wear many hats. Yeah. <laughs> I wear many hats. And you've been in Milan, you said, for 25 years? 25 years. So, so 25 years based, you know, more or less based, um, but going back and forth from the beginning stages. And back and forth, just tell me, how does, how does a guy from Ohio come to Milan? Um, what, you know, uh, go stepping back further, I'm, I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I went to school in Columbus, Ohio. So from Cleveland, I moved to, to Columbus to study. That was my first college. I graduated in Cleveland and um, I wasn't, I didn't even know what fashion design was for that matter. I think this, you know, we're talking about in the 80s, um, dating myself here. But I went to um, college for fine art and illustration. I was always a great illustrator. I grew up in an artistic family. My mother's a pianist, you know, my family are musicians. And um, so I knew that I wanted to be an artist. You know, I was already in high school, I was drawing and I was, it was an expression. But fashion came nowhere near that conversation. I didn't know, you know, that there was a possibility of actually having a career in that. I just knew that I was somewhere in the arts. So at Columbus College of Art and Design, my degree was in, in fashion illustration and retail advertising, which is a strange category in, in, in the degree that they, they put you in, but they didn't know where to put these people who, who didn't know what they wanted to be, but <laughs> needed to get a degree. I would already started going back and forth to New York because I had a friend that I was studying with um, who was a graffiti artist and he was living in New York. So um, 
I knew that was probably the next place that I wanted to be. New York was in the 90s. It was the city to be in for me, um, or at least I thought. And then I arrived in New York City, and what I did in order to get there, um, I was doing visual merchandising. So I was, I was a window display person, and, and that was like, I think in the, in the end of the 80s, early part of the 90s, that was a big job because display and visual was like a big thing for large-scale companies and even small-scale companies. Well, I remember because, like... I remember it was like the height of uh, or the rise of Simon Dugan. Remember the, exactly. the whole 40s window was uh, like it. Exactly. So that was the situation. And so um, window display was the thing. And, and it, was the, the, it was also the, let's say, the occupation for um, artists that wanted to make money but then do something on the side. So you were able to use your artistic expression in, in, in doing window display. Because window display wasn't just dressing mannequins in the clothing. It was everything that, that surrounded it. So it was like building up these environments um, within the stores, inside, and also outside, meaning the windows. So um, I was working for The Gap and um, to make money to, to go pay for school. I worked at The Gap. I worked at Benetton. It was like I was retail, you know, working in fashion retail. And um, that kind of gave me the hint or the idea that fashion was something that I was interested in. It was less interested saying i would say in what fashion was and more curious about how people dress themselves so it was really a personality thing oh, interesting. Um, and i asked my boss at the gap if she could put me in touch with the people in windows in new york city to get a transfer from ohio to um, new york city and so we set up the appointment i met with lisa abby who was the, the director at that time and um, i got a transfer and i moved to new york with $50 in my pocket. I was like couch surfing, you know, for the first period. And um, I landed there. I hadn't thought about school again until after maybe six months I was working. And you were doing window design at the Gap in uh, It's a funny story. I was doing window display at the Gap in um, Manhattan. And they have districts. I was Upper East Side. It was a, a zone and an area that was completely like on the other side of, of, of town for me. I was living in the, the East Village. And um, so it, it, it familiarized me with, you know, environment and also status and all of those things. It was a, it was a real lesson in, in, in finding my pace in New York City, but um, it served. And so I was working on the Upper East Side. A lot of, there were a lot of stores at that time. Gap had like stores on every block. I don't know if you remember it. Like Gap was like... I had friends that lived at like 80th and Lex mm -hmm. at the time. So I remember like the mid-90s. Yeah. I also remember being like kind of quiet too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, it was the jeans house, you know, where you want to get your jeans and so your mm -hmm. basics. Mm -hmm. So um, while I was in the window at the Gap, so this is like four or five months into um, arriving in, in New York City, um, this guy is like knocking on the window and he's like, come here, come here, come here. And he said, oh, I'm, I work for Giorgio Armani and I'm, I'm um, recruiting for a new um, project that we're we're going to be opening up. So this was in the 90s. So the first store for Giorgio Armani, Armani Exchange, opened in 1991. And um, so they were recruiting for this store and they said, I'd like you to come in for an interview. Just me in the window, okay? This is a New York story. This is how it happens in New York, you know? You know, these, these kind of like, you know, mishaps turn into, you know, blossom into careers. So um, I met with um, Giorgio Armani and um, I started working with Giorgio Armani. So it was... Doing windows? doing window display, visual merchandising. So it was in showrooms. I was doing Black Label. I was doing Emporio. 
I was all because you were in the window of the gap. I was because I was in the window of the gap, and then you know when I met with them for visual merchandising, of course I had a portfolio, and right. they knew that I had an artistic background, background and an eye. So, um, and I talked a good game. So I ended up um, being hired by Giorgio Armani, and I was hired by Giorgio Armani full time for Emporio Gap. I mean Emporio Armani, Giorgio Armani Black Label showrooms, and then Armani Exchange, which is the new project that they were launching at the time. And so I started working full-time there, and it just, I knew I wasn't finished with education. So I put together a portfolio. I said, I'm going to go to Parsons. I'm going to go to Parsons because it's the best. They have portfolio days, so I went to present my portfolio. And I remember going in there and, and um, in the admissions office, and I showed the portfolio. And then the guy gets up and he carries the portfolio back and they go back and forth and back and forth. I was like, what the hell is going on here? And, and um, it was because I was a great illustrator. And, and you know, in Ohio, I, the foundation for me was always of, of art in general, was always color and composition and all of those things. And that's why I think it was important and it served to the work that I do today to not jump directly into fashion design. I wanted a 360 kind of education in the process of history and color and everything that surrounded the world. So by the time that I got to Parsons and I, and I, and I didn't know really anything about a croquis or designing or create, creating actually a garment, they accepted me and they gave me a scholarship and I entered um, into Parsons as a, as a sophomore. So the foundation was over, so I just started right into design. And I was going to school full-time and also working full-time. So it was a funny period because I was like showing up to like draping class wearing like black label Armani <laughs> at school, which is ironic because, you know, I, I, um, my beginning story in New York, of course, you arrive in New York and you struggle. I didn't come from, you know, a family um, of, of money that really supported that. So everything that I had to do was on my own. Um, the support was in other ways. It was in love and it was encouragement, um, but it wasn't financial. So how did how did your peers feel? At, you know, like you walking into Parsons second year, like only <laughs> the second year, and then also being like, oh, I gotta go to work at Armani. Yeah, where I'm doing the visual design. <laughs> like the I know design it was kind of badass. It was like it was um, I in the '90s in that period, New York was a great place for me. I was I was. I, I worked really hard, but I had a really kind of privileged status in, in being in school because, you know, normally being in school, and that's related to also already had, having done school. Right. So all of that angst and partying and all that stuff. You got that out of the way. I got it out of the way. You know, I was there, like, I knew that I wanted to be a student and I knew I wanted to be focused and, um, and I was already working, you know, so I was already in, in essence... I could have continued as a visual merchandiser and made a big career out of out of visual display and and gone on to do other things, but I knew that was only just touching the edge, as I said before, of really what I wanted to do. Um, but I had a great set of friends, and 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 Parsons came with um, a history in in design at the time, and um, I knew what I was up against, but I worked really hard. I I have to say that it was it was exhausting. I was tired. Um, I was always good at working um, in the last minute, even if I was formulating the ideas in my head. And then I, when I hit Are the you paper, a I'm a Gemini. Okay, so Gemini, you're good at 
thinking about it and then executing. Exactly. And just put it, you know, it's, it's, there was a lot of, um, well, there had to be a lot of somehow procrastination in that period. I, I remember specifically because um, I loved, I loved design. I still love design. I love design. I love the process of design. And I loved um, somehow projecting, um, which is a part of the design process. Um, at the same time, um, it was important that I, I gave, you know, 1,000% at work. Otherwise, I wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. And that period was chaotic and exciting because I was, at the same time that I was doing window display, you know, because when I started going to Parsons, um, I was a great illustrator. So um, a lot of the companies that were collaborating and working with Parsons wanted me to illustrate for them. So I was doing... When you say illustrate for them, it was like fashion illustration? Fashion illustrations, yeah. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I I feel like you must have been like on some serious adrenaline. Um, when you're when you're when you're in your twenties, you know what that's like. You know, when you're in your twenties, you just want to do more, 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 more. And you're in the city that just kind of offers you all of those possibilities. It was a very different time. So um, you know, we weren't you know spending you know ninety percent of our time on the phone. You know, we were doing shit. And so I was you know at at the same time I was I was I was going out at night. I was. You know, there was it was just a, a period of of um, of immense inspiration and and um, and movement and, and excitement. It was it was crazy. It was like really, it was a beautiful period. You know, Edward was getting a lot done and enjoying his time. His professional momentum was moving fast. So I asked him why he decided to leave. So I finished Parsons. And um, what I thought was, you know, well, yeah, I, I graduated with, with, with honors. I was, it was awarded a silver thimble and a gold thimble, and then I exited. And my, my mentor when I was there was a, a designer named Gordon Henderson. Gordon Henderson is an American designer, and he had his own label, Gordon Henderson, also but Gordon. Um, he was one of my critics, and then my other critic was Isaac Mizrahi. Oh, wow. And um, so um, I, I finished, and Gordon... Um, who also happened to be an African-American designer, kind of put me in front of everyone. And um, he kind of ushered me into a lot of these companies. So, I mean, when I, when I say ushered me in, he made an appointment with Calvin, the Calvin Klein, because he used to work with Calvin Klein. So I met with Calvin, I met with Donna, I met with Ralph, I met with all these people, and no, no one was biting. Um, I would send my portfolio, and they would be like, oh, this guy's really good, really interesting. Come on in. Nothing was biting. I, the only bite I got, which was really funny, is that um, they were looking for an intern at Perry Ellis. And at, this was the year that Mark Jacobs was, the years that Mark Jacobs was at Perry Ellis. So I, um, I went in, I met with Mark, and I met with Robert, who was his assistant at that time, and they loved my drawings, and they were like, oh, this guy's good, let's, you know, you, yeah, let's give you an internship. It was right in the same season that the Grunge Collection was being done by Mark Jacobs, and he ended up getting fired after that. Right. And I ended up not doing the internship. And so um, I was in the position, an interesting position, that um, I wanted to shift into design. So my idea was to get an internship, continue working at Giorgio Armani, and do them both at the same time like I did school. So I was able to make money, but I was obviously, always obviously able to, to start working. And um, the work part wasn't necessarily happening. And um, I'll come back to that because I, it, it, it makes sense now to me. But what ended up happening is that my friend Rodney Patterson was doing visual merchandising at Bottega Veneta. Okay. And Bottega Veneta at that time was a family-owned business. It was a family, 
the Moltedo family, which is from which are from Vicenza, the family. And um, so he was doing windows for them because you know in window display you have a community uh-huh. of people. He happened to be a very good friend of mine and still is to this day. Um, he told them about me and he said, "Oh, um, I got you a meeting um, with the Moltedo family from Bottega Veneta." What is it? Ninety five. Bottega Veneta, I had no freaking clue of what it was. I wasn't interested. I, I, I was, my mind was like elsewhere. I was Belgium. I, I was mean, like Helmut Lang and Andy Minimuster was like. You were like high fashion and they were, yeah. I mean, I would just think leather and bags at exactly, the time, right? Exactly. So it was, it was like, what am I going to do there? And Bottega Veneta at the time. And, I, and, I, and one of the details that I noticed is that the, the shelves were rolling up. It was like, it was in a, it was in a, it was in, 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 a, in a period where Bottega Veneta really wasn't about Bottega Veneta. So I looked around, I saw the thing, and then when I went to them, I wanted to go with a project in hand. And um, because I knew, um, you know, the preface was that Bottega Veneta um, had only done accessories. So intrachato handbags, shoes, it was an accessories business. They built the business in the 70s. The first uh, store was on Madison Avenue. Lotto Motedo was the, the um, receptionist at the factory, Andy Warhol's factory. So there was a history. I learned all these little points oh, about the company. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I learned that. That's I learned a that very after. Interesting detail. Yeah, I learned that after. Um, um, and so I said, okay, let me create this little capsule of um, what I think. And, and I, I, I wasn't, it wasn't stressful. Um, I was working. I had a job. I had money in the bank. So, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, you know, as you do when you're young. And so I was in an aggressive approach to what Bottega Veneta could be. And um, I approached it in creating this capsule as an accessory to the accessories. And it was, um, it was probably like 15 or 20 designs and in a presentation. And I met with them and just, we talked for hours. It was, she was so, so great. And, and so responsive. And um, after that meeting, three weeks later, I was flying to Vicenza. So they hired me and they hired me green. They hired me with no luxury experience. They hired me, you know, here I am, this, you know, black American guy that they're hiring to, to start an apparel business for a company in Italy. I don't speak the language. In Vicenza, um, by the way. It was in Vicenza, tiny. by the way. In Vicenza, in Bastia, even. What was your attitude towards that change? Do you feel now like you knew at the time what you were getting yourself into? When you're young, you don't even consider the pressure of what that means or you're just like, okay, I'm going to go to Europe, you know? Um, So I fly to Vicenza, I fly to Venice. And when I fly to Venice, um, the very first trip, um, I get out of the airplane and then, you know, I have my bags. And at that time I had long dreadlocks. I was probably dressed similar to I am today, a sweatshirt and some jeans or something on. And they stopped me. They stopped me at the, the exit and at the exit and the, the customs. And uh, they were like, where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm going to, to, to start work. You know, explaining the whole situation. And they said, oh, do you have drugs? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't even smoke cigarettes. You know, in that time, I didn't smoke until I arrived in Italy. And they said, well, if you have drugs, just give them to us. And I was like, I don't have drugs. <laughs> so they took me in the back and they strip searched me. They cavity searched me. In Venice. In Venice airport. 
you know, and um, I had to end up calling someone from Bottega Veneta to come and, you know, just like kind of work through this paperwork and what this meant. And so um, 360, that kind of was the preface of, of, of knowing that I was entering into uh, a place and a life where what maybe I was used to as an American living in a city which was super multicultural and, 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 and diverse into an environment where someone that looked like me um, wasn't like the others. That was just the first beginning stages. And when I reflect on that, you know, when, when, I, when I think back to, to that period, um, that was my real, that was my real like change moment when I arrived there. So um, I started, Vicenza is a very interesting city because there's an American base there. There were a lot of Americans living in, living in Vicenza. The beginning stages of, of work was really, really difficult because I didn't know any factories. I didn't know the language. You know, I had to, to um, no fear. I, I really had to kind of like jump, you know, feet first in the, in the situation and, and, um, and start to figure it out, you know? I mean, that's like a big, it's uh, <laughs> like a big drop into your whole, I mean, completely other world. And then, you know, it's not, again, like you're saying, it's not Milan because it was not, and even Milan at that time, by the way, yeah. I was going to ask you, but I, I want you to yeah. tell me more of your story. Yeah. Because even Milan in the 90s was, is not Milan that you see today. Absolutely. You Absolutely know, not. I can only imagine yeah. what it must have been like to have this nice welcome from the Venetians at the airport <laughs> and then going into this place. That when you find yourself in a, in, a, in a space or an environment where um, the mystery and the, the um, you know, you don't necessarily understand something that's not you or that you're not accustomed to. And that was how I viewed that first moment. It was like, where's this guy going? He's landing in Venice and he's going to Vicenza. Um, you know, he has dreadlocks. We don't see people that look like this, you know. In Italy at the time, and even in Milan for that matter at the time, if you were black and brown, you or sold Prada bags on the street, or you worked in fashion. And the in-between wow. didn't exist in the middle stages. I mean, that is... It's extreme. Yeah. Is extreme. So uh, I remember I didn't have my, my, my first, I didn't see my first taxi driver in black taxi driver in, in Italy, you know, for many years after. And so in official spaces, and it still exists today, in official spaces like government spaces, like post offices and things like that, you really don't see black and brown people working within those spaces. No, you no. see cleaners, you see, you know, you see mm -hmm. the, the hired help. So um, I, I, I knew these would be challenges. And so I was somehow mentally prepared to, to battle and push through. Um, but I learned a lot more in the, you know, in the kind of in an organic way by facing them um, head on. When I moved to Milan, um, there were other things that were, you know, yes, I found myself working in a space at, at a very high level um, where I was one of the only ones, you know, there were others that existed in the space. There was, there was Lauren Steele, and there was Warren, who was at Jill Sander. Um, there were others um, that were working in the space. So we had kind of a, um, a community. I had a community of people that I knew, but, you know, still I felt, you know, like I was really the only one in that space. The beauty of that period was I was 
working, yes, under an, an enormous amount of pressure because um, the first few seasons was like really difficult because I'm sure they were thinking, why don't we hire this guy? But at the same time, I was like working so hard and um, we built up the, the structure and the, the, the retail operation and, and the wholesale operation of the apparel business for Bottega Veneta. I was there for almost seven years, you know? And the last year that I was there was when actually Gucci Group, which it was called at that moment, actually purchased Bottega Veneta. And so um, it is, yeah, I'm a part of the, the, the history of that company and um, it was a great period. And it prepared me. It, it was my school in luxury goods. It was my school in, in business. It was my school. And because it was a family-owned business, I touched everything. You know, I saw everything. So, you know, I always think that, you know, young people, when they find themselves in those environments, you have to kind of be a sponge. And you have to suck it all up. Take it all in. Yeah, up. it prepared me for, for many things. When did you start Sansa Vita 6? Sansa Vita 6 came uh, much later. I, um... When I left Bottega Veneta, I started a collection with the um, accessories director from Bottega Veneta. Her name was Manuela Morin. Uh-huh. She's also American, Italian-American. We started, we started um, La Fleche. La Fleche was um, a, a collective that we did, and it was like very highbrow, like um, Victorian hip-hop. You know, we were working with the best factories. It was like extreme luxury, but it was creative luxury. And it was beautiful to start this project because it was, um, it had no history. You know, after working for so many years for a company that had a history, essentially, so you were interpreting what you thought that history should be for the future. Whereas we were starting a project based on luxury that had no history. And also in that period in, in Milan, it didn't exist, those types of small independent companies. So Really? Yeah, it didn't really exist, you know? Everything was establishment in Italy. Oh. You know, there was still the Gucci's and the Prada's and the Ferragamo's and all of those things. And, and so, young design, there wasn't awards that were, were, were um, or collectives that were created for young designers. So, we were kind of on our own. And that, was, that lasted about five years. And we, we reached a, you know, a high high, but we were not structured business-wise. It was a self-financed business. Um, the press was amazing. We were in the best stores in the world. Um, but we needed more, you know, we needed more, more, um, not preparation, we needed more support mm. in order to make that thing go forward. So, but that was the, the period in, in, in which I did um, La Flesh. Um, I wasn't a technician, a knitwear technician, but it was always a part of what I did. And maybe that comes from the casual aspects of what I think clothing is and, and being an American. Um, I always somehow drifted towards knit and knitwear and comfort and the idea of comfort. I wanted to learn more about it. And incidentally, one of the first factories that I met, actually the first factory that I met with to start Bottega Veneta was a knitwear factory. And that knitwear factory was the factory that I worked at throughout the course of my career. Oh, wow. Now, yeah. I, I, have, I know that there's, historically, there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of knitwear factories in Prato. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and is there, is it also, it's, I think that you have to like Prato and then outside of Milan, is that correct? Well, it's kind of uh, all over the place. Yes, there's okay. a lot of network factories in Prato. I work with network factories in, in Reggio Emilia and okay. in um, still Veneto, um, Imola, you know, they're all over the place. There weren't very many in Milan, in Milan center. And the one that I found that was in Milan, 
um, that I started to work with was because of out of convenience. Our offices were here, so I was like, "Oh, let's do it," and they ended up working with me, you know, throughout the entire period. So that factory, um, Silvana, when I started working with her, it was kind of an exchange for me because yes, she was building, you know, the collection that I was was creating for Bottega Veneta. She was somehow it was an exchange of my creative process with her technical skills and and um, it was a medium that I just kind of fell in love with. I'm constantly in school, still to this day. So I, I started consulting, I did the flesh. It was very high profile, the flesh, because um, it was just outrageous. It was just this beautiful, crazy, outrageous things that, you know, there was a lot of celebrity involved. We were dressing Cher and all of these things, you know, in the 90s. And, and um, we did some things for Jennifer Lopez, which was for that movie Made in Manhattan. Yes, and right? I believe that's M-A-I-D. <laughs> exactly. And so um, after that, I got contacted by Jennifer Lopez, who I obviously, uh, apparently liked the things that she was wearing. And um, they call, called the office and said, we want you to meet with them. And then I was in New York and I met with Jennifer and she was, um, she had a line called J-Lo, which is, you know, the jeans and uh -huh. t-shirts. Aspirational. I was a big fan. Okay. Aspirational. And then there was a line called Sweet Face and they were looking for a consultant for Sweet Face. They were doing this big, huge show. They wanted someone with luxury experience. And then I ended up working with a lot of celebrities in that period. I worked with Sean Combs. I did some things for Iman. And these were all product-based, product-based, um... Collection. Sean Puff Daddy had Sean Sean John, mm -hmm. and so I worked on his ten years anniversary show. Um, what What did I bring to that? I brought yes, I had already luxury experience. I had Italian manufacturing experience. I knew how to speak to the factories. I spoke Italian at that point, so there when, was an advantage to. Can Can I ask a weird like that? That was actually my in the back of my head. I wanted to ask you what the biggest difference was, or I wanted to ask you. You know, these are American celebrity brands. Are they sourcing from Italy or? Um, not all. Um, a lot of them were, were, were sourcing in in Asia at that time. A lot of the work, especially in the knitwear sector, had gone to Asia because of price point uh -huh. and, and also technique. But they wanted Italian manufacturing. That was like the thing to have, you know, you if you had the connect there and you had someone that could actually work with the factory, they wanted to have, you know, those things that were like crafted in 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 the center of you know the fashion meccas and so um that was something that i brought to the table and also um i once you start working in that world i think that they have confidence and know that you can handle that situation i've never jumped into those situations thinking that i have something to gain from them for me it was a job and um i i i respect the space, I respect the work that they do, um, I respect the, the, their celebrity, but um, I'm, I'm a designer, I'm a designer's designer, and so um, you want me to design, we got something to do. I'm not chasing them down for, for something else. So we got along really well. I learned so much working with, with, with um, Sean, with Puff. He can sell you an empty trash bag, you know, he was, um, um, he was very, um, pivotal in that in that moment in, in knowing that yes I wanted to turn back to Italy um, and he encouraged that and but I also learned a really different way of thinking in the same way many years later that I learned a lot working with Virgil 
and and um, not just because they're they're both African American designers, but in the process and and knowing um, the consumer that they're talking to, um, uh, directing the consumer, but at the same same time listening to the consumer, and um, that makes a big difference in in product development. And so um, I did all of that, and then I was like, bye, I'm going back to Italy. And when I came back to Italy, um, <laughs> I was like, see ya. Edward headed back to Italy, and that was when he started working on Sansovino 6. I was curious as to what catalyzed that decision, so I asked him what the inspiration was behind it. I started Sansovino 6 because um, the factory that I originally started working with that I was telling you about, uh-huh. um, um, Silvana, was still in Milano, and that was the period when all of um, the Italian manufacturers were starting to have problems because everyone was going to, to Asia knitwear and, and uh-huh. fabric sourcing and everything. So they were losing a lot of business. Um, and so I went back to this factory. She was one of the last factories that were here in Milan. And, and she had, you know, she was like, she's like my second mother, Silvana. So I was like, let's do something so that, that we can give you kind of a display, you know, to show the possibilities of what you can do. Um, as outlandish as it may be, um, let's create a collection. Uh, it doesn't have to be a... You know, a collection that we're necessarily going to sell, um, but let's create something. <laughs> I thought in that way because you know, for me, it was going to be a window display. Because when you create something and people can see it, then they can say, "Oh, yeah, this is what they they can do," and then we can start working with them based on the creations okay, okay. of what they do. So I came back and and I wanted. To, I said the only the only stipulation in actually doing this is that you just let me do what the fuck I need to do, and and don't question me about the creative process. Um, because there's a, a method to the madness, and we're going to get you some business, right? After all that I've done and all the spaces that I was in, I wanted to do something that was quite personal. Um, so I sent out emails to a lot of friends, whether they be doctors or whether they be technicians or whether they be fashion designers or stylists. And I asked them two questions. I said, what is it that you have in your wardrobe that you covet and can't live without? And what is it that you don't have that you would really need in your wardrobe? And I got back various things. I got back jeans, perfect white shirt, you know, perfect parka. You know, I got back all of these things. And then I lined them up. And I chose six pieces. Sansovino 6. Sansovino 6. Ah. Sansovino 6 was actually the address of the factory, which made sense. But I based it on the number. Six pieces. Six perfect pieces. And jeans. And I built those six pieces in fully fashioned knitwear. So well, if it was a parka, pieces. there was a parka, there was a white shirt, there was jeans, there was a t-shirt, and there was um, uh, um, a girocollo, there was a crew neck sweater. And um, so jeans, perfect white shirt, and, and parka were things that were made in woven material. So you're normally made in cotton, but it's a completely different right. structure. So the, the challenge and the interesting challenge for me was to start to develop how do you create the perfect white shirt in knitwear that has the same qualities of poplin, but is not a poplin, uh, or how do you develop jeans, um, and this is before diesel, by the way, how do you develop knitted jeans so you have the same quality as wearing a jean, you have the same comfort, but it actually looks like jeans. Oh. So, how do you create the perfect parka, which we consider a military parka in, in green cotton that's damaged and right. worn in? You know, so it was a it was a 
um, the work process was very interesting for me because I started from local ideas and um, I wanted to translate those local ideas into, you know, what became the DNA of the brand. And um, so, you know, the jeans took several seasons to develop, but when we launched it, it was like outrageous. And when we launched it, that was the thing that really took off. And, and it was, you know, Sansuguno 6 does knitted jeans and we did t-shirts and we did jeans, we did jean skirts. What, what? And it looked, it looks like when you don't touch it, it looks what? like jeans. And then you put it on and it's almost like you're wearing, you know, a sweatsuit. I, I'm, gonna have to, I, I'm, a, I'm a jeans <laughs> Yeah. So you're speaking to the choir here. <laughs> I don't have to create a collection every season. I can do projects for people. I can do projects for companies. Last season I did a project with um, Nima Marcus, designed specific pieces for Nima Marcus. We launched, they do, it was like direct to consumer. Um, I did. Does um, that come with a label like name it like Sensor Six for It just says Sensor Six. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's my brand. So, so it's it's um it's in a great place right now because I I can guide it where I want to guide it to. When I started showing, I wanted to show um a message. I, I it was always about a message. The message was 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 about community Sensor Six because my collaborators were always just a lot of people that work closely to me. Whenever I do shows, it's not a runway show for that matter. It's always a, a story, it's storytelling. But this goes back to your foundations, like you were saying. As I was saying, it, it, it all turns back. Yeah. So I, I create this kind of, you know, multi-dimensional world where, yes, the apparel is the, the centerpiece, but um, there's a lot of other things that are happening around it. And so, um, the the you know Stephen Galloway is a is a, a was a principal dancer for the Frankfurt Ballet. He's now a movement director. He coined the term movement director that I collaborated with Deborah Shaw, famous model from the '90s, who I also ended up working with. Um, who also is a singer. Um, I started working with her. David Blank is a young um, um, Afro Italian that lives here in Milan. Uh, super talented. I started working with him. So there's all, all, you know, I'm touching a lot of these different spaces. And, and then when I say message, the message for me is, is um, what have I learned and how can we communicate that so that the others can use that also as their message. And so um, within the scale of this, I created, you know, in the beginning stages of the, the election of Donald Trump, I remember thinking, I can't um, complain about what's happening without actively attempting to to um, uh, offer an idea or an inspiring um, thought to what's happening around us. So I was like, I'm going to create messages. And I created these three message scarves. And... Um, I financed the whole project and um, there were three messages. There was resist, there was um, wake up for freedom, and there was we're all migrants. And so I created these, these three scarves and I gave them out. I, I completely gave them out in, in different cities to different people. And um, it wasn't really about influencers, it was about people. And um, it didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't 
ask or require you to do anything. I wanted you to have the scarves and I wanted you to understand what that word meant to you because resist to you might mean something else. Resist to me might mean a completely other thing. But the only thing that I, um, I asked is that for the people that received the scarves, if they could create a message on, on social media saying what that word means to them. And, um, and, and that was um, the start of a lot of things that existed with, with Sense of Uno 6. Because Sense of Uno 6, as I said, is I always wanted to build it up as a community. Right. I wanted to build it as, as a community. I wanted to build it up thinking that tomorrow, today I'm doing sweaters. Tomorrow I could be doing books. Um, the day after that, I could be doing a dance performance. Um, it, it's multifaceted, um, even in its base of, of fashion. But um, it's the only thing that I can think of for, for my future in my head. And um, there has to be a, a um, play it back. Okay. Let me ask you this, what is, what are you thinking as far as, because I know, I know you're kind of, I mean, you are a Renaissance fan of the 21st century with the, these, the 20, yeah, 21st, I was so <laughs> with, with, the, with these different evolutions that you've had, I mean, it's, it's it, like the word evolutions, plural, I think is perfect to describe you, and, um, or revolutions, evolutions, revolutions, um, what, and, and I know one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I know you're also uh, the fashion director of Perfect Magazine, yeah. so that's a whole other world. Yeah, that's, Milano fashion director, yeah. And that's that's mm-hmm. also, like, you know, like that, that touches on things I love, which is editorial yeah. and writing, but, um, and, but you, and that's fashion. But, um, mm-hmm. What do you, before we touch on that, what are you thinking as far as in your head with, with your future? Or are you just a Gemini that's like... Well, I am, but I'm, I mean, I'm doing... I'm doing a lot of different things and, and I'm doing a lot of different things that uh, and they're things that I, I care about. You know, they're, they're, they're yes, community projects. I teach a master's in knitwear. Where? And I teach a master's in, in, in well, the, the school is based in Rome. It's the Academy of um, Mode and Costume. Oh, well, I got to. It's right here in my house. I know exactly where it okay. is. Oh. Well, so they have, the, the knitwear division is in Regimilia. Modoteca Diana is the, the historic Miss Diana. Um, who was who was the um, the genius of of Miss Diana is untold, and there has to be a book. Um, but she she was you know one of the and, and, and still is existed as one of the the most uh, creative and beautiful stories in in knitwear. So she was the manufacturer for Kenzo and and Margiela and and Joseph and so many wow. others. And so she's an archive there, but they also built the knitwear school within the, the quarters of Moroteca Diana. And, um, and so they asked me to be the, the tutor for the master's course in knitwear, which is great because I love teaching. I love working with, with, um, with young thinkers, young creatives. And um, I learn something every day with them as much as what I bring to them. So it's kind of a, an exchange. So I do that. And I, I do, um, I, I'm a part of a collective which is called Whammy. We Are Made in Italy. We Are Made in Italy um, was born from the um, existing, uh, yes, off of the, off of the um, um, let's say, the shift and, and uh, realization um, after um, George Floyd, knowing that 
yes, that's happening over there, but we have to look within the space that we are, and it, it exists also in the system. And um, so we created me with um, Stella Jean, who's also a designer. She's based. based in Rome. Exactly, Rome based. She's Caribbean? Uh, uh, Haitian. She's Haitian, mm -hmm. right. And um, Michelle Ngomo, who is the founder and creator of Afro Fashion Week, Afro Fashion Association, which has existed in Milan um, for six years. So we got together and created um, this initiative. And this initiative initially, um, we wanted to create a, a cultural reform, um, specifically talking about BIPOC. Um, so the existence of, of, of black and brown creatives working in this space, um, not getting the same, um, not being offered the same opportunities as their counterparts. And so we had to question that. We had to say, where are we? Why does this exist? Why do we see a shift and a change in, in, um, in advertising in the models that you use that are completely diverse? In, um, but on the inside of these companies, they don't exist. They're not making their way into those spaces. So yes, it's a support structure. Yes, we're challenging the system, um, but we're not, um, we're not asking them for any favors. Um, but what we are doing is, is insisting that we are here, um, we are Italian, uh, we deserve the same opportunities. And if we cannot collaborate and align with you, then we're gonna create them ourselves. And that's the, the, the essence of it. Every season, we introduce five new talents. And, and okay, we... Are you doing this at Afro Fashion Week? Or are you doing we do it along with Afro Fashion Week. So okay. the, the five designers, which are called the Fab Five, um, are the... For the last three seasons, they've been the sh first show that opens um, Milano Fashion Week through the Camera National de Moda. Um, they are multifaceted creatives that come from... Um, from various um, um, continents and, and places, but the thing that, that we have in common is that they're all based here and they're all Italian manufactured. I, th I think, um, you know, I, I recently, over the past year, I've, I've, uh, I've been speaking a lot with Ms. Wada Allison oh. and African Fashion House. Mm -hmm. Can we see this? It kicks off um, Afro Fashion Week, and that is, uh, those, are, those are still optics, you know, but what we're instilling and what we want is to build these businesses. We want to build these careers. The opportunities that, you know, their counterparts that, that happen to be a few shades lighter than them are offered, they're not offered. So we have to, the mentorship for them is in the process, um, how to create a collection, how do you choose materials, how do you think about market, Where, who, who do you want to speak to, um, how do we create a business for you or how do we create a great portfolio for you um, that's going to be able to get you or find you in a space um, that allows you to grow? The show process is 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 beautiful and it's 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 visual. Um, that doesn't solve the problem. We don't want um, the optics to over you know overshine the real problem that exists here. So you know we're building from the inside out. The show that happens here is fantastic, but we want the Camera Nacional de Moda, we want uh, Condé Nast and Vogue Italia to, to note. And in Vogue Italia, we got, the, we got the cover of Vogue 
you know, for the first mm-hmm. time with, with, with five women, five BIPOC women on the cover. It's never, it's unprecedented, never happened. So um, that's a check. That's not, it's not solved. You know, no, no. there's so much more exactly. work to do. Exactly. <laughs> that's a cover it's of a magazine. <laughs> that's a cover of a magazine, but we want, you know, we want to think that, what you sounds, know. It sounds to me like what you're, you're, you, what you guys are creating is a little bit similar to how, like when you were talking about how, again, back to your foundation mm-hmm. and, and what you were doing for yourself. And you did say you had your, um, Mentor. You did have a mentor. Gordon. Yeah, you're yeah. you're Gordon. But you've kind of created a bigger Gordon, you know? And yeah. Like, and not even I mean I, I you're creating community. Yeah. And that's what seems like the, the this true line for everything you've been doing. Well that's what I said. When you asked me about what's the history when what's the future of, of Sensomino Six, and it's difficult to answer that question because I I I um it's been very hard. I talked to this my, about this with my therapist and also my boyfriend, but it's very hard for me to say that um, what success means to me. Oh. And I, I find myself in a position where I'm extremely happy. Um, I, I am contacted still for work. I have a place within this industry. Um, um, I still find myself in, in corners where people don't know who I am and I'm perfectly fine with that. What I want to do now is change the trajectory of, of where we are as a people for the future. I want to be able to, to start to understand and be able to shift and help others communicate and, and find their way into an industry that doesn't always or hasn't always welcomed them into it. And so that's a big task and I'm not going to be able to solve it all, but a community can. And so with whammy and then you know that it has long legs because with whammy um uh, michelle has already um and together with us has already created unseen profiles unseen profiles is essentially a um a database a database of 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 bpoc individuals not only fashion working in fashion in the fashion sector but we have chefs we have house cleaners we have architects we have lawyers, and it is a, a, a community, but it's also a database that you that we can partner with companies in order for them to not have an excuse. Exactly. We don't want any excuses. Here so you if you're not holding, if you're not, if you're, you can't be inclusive and diverse on the outside if you're not inclusive and diverse on the inside. Because if you're saying that you are, then you're lying. And you're covering up something because it's very easy for you to put up a beautiful page and a beautiful window display with black and brown people and, and trans women and and you know it's 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 easy for you to do that because you just pay them and you put them up. But um, in order to catch and question what's going on on the outside, you need to be holding on the inside those who can assist and help you question those things. Otherwise, it's just never going to work. And it starts in the top. It starts from the top, you know, and, and the power structures as they are um, all over the world, not just in Italy. We know who's holding the power. And in order to make change, those who are at the tip top that have been holding on to that power for a long time have to be willing to relinquish that power. And if they're not, the change is not going to happen. Before we wrapped up our conversation, I wanted to know all about Perfect. 
Edward's gorgeous and independent fashion magazine. And I wanted to know his editorial perspective. Perfect it is, is, was born from uh, a relationship with, with Katie Grant, who's the director of the magazine and the founder of the magazine. And I know Katie Grant from the 90s because Katie Grant was the first stylist that I worked with at Bottega Veneta, Veneta. We hadn't seen each other. And then we started talking on, on uh, Instagram. We were able to obviously follow each other and know what, what was happening in each other's lives. And then we ended up meeting in Ibiza um, over last summer, two summers ago. But anyway, we met in Ibiza. And, and we started talking about doing something together. And, and um, I never worked in editorial as a, as a journalist or working with a magazine. So at first I was like, what in the hell can I do here? At the same time, a part of my everyday job is editing and, and, and curiosity and, and working with youth and um, all of those things that, that obviously work well in the context of, of communicating through you know, printed um, and digital magazine. And so, um, you know, she said to me, you're the only one in Italy that can do this. And, you know, Katie's a bully. And I said, yes. Katie wanted to create um, a magazine based on an international conversation, um, youth conversation, um, questioning society, what exists within society, but also celebrating a fashion space. You know, we love fashion, um, but we, all, we also love the conversation of what's happening around fashion. So um, it's an independent magazine. So we don't necessarily have the, the same pressures as a, as a publication, which is it's, propped up by, by anything else. It's print as well as digital, correct? Mm-hmm. But it comes mm-hmm. out twice a year, correct? It comes out when it's ready to come out. And we just launched number two. And um, this is the first issue that I actually worked on. And, um, and it is it's very interesting because, you know, because I'm essentially overseeing the Italian space. I'm the Milano fashion director. We have a fashion director in in Paris, we have London, we have New York, and um, and so I wanted to to be able to to bring to the conversation the things that that I'm talking about, the things that I'm working on, and how that in in context can work with the perfect community. And so the first story I did was on Milano talent, Milano youth talent, and Milano creatives, and. Um, so I did a casting of, of people that wouldn't necessarily get to have that conversation, you know. Um, it's easy to, to look on top and look at what everyone else is talking about and, and uh, the, the same run-of-the-mill conversations, but we have to kind of like jump into those subcultures and understand what's happening around. I, I read it. I, I really, I, well, I read it because I was on, it was, it was on a digital version. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I read it and I really liked what you were saying about like the, the pulse of what's going on in Milan right now. Yeah. I really enjoyed that piece. Mm-hmm. So things like that, I got a chance to talk to Kavi and, and um, what he's doing with, with TikTok and how that exploded and how he built that, you know, so it's, it allows me, you know, it's still the right and left side of my brain because, you know, in a way, you know, these are things that I, I do every day in my workspace, but um, it's another community project and another outlet for um, conversations and, and questioning um, where we are today and where we want to go tomorrow. 
Thank you to Edward, Sansovino 6, and We Are Made in Italy for making this episode happen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao Bella. The editor of Ciao Bella is Mastro. Production manager is Jenna Spray. If you're new to Ciao Bella, take a peek at ciaobella.co, our all-encompassing Italy-focused website, where you'll find insider insight on contemporary Italy. And sign up for our newsletter for new episodes and articles. Follow me on Instagram at Erica Firpo, and follow Ciao Bella on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Leave us a rating or comment. Ciao, ciao.